commenced a series of sermons on the life and teachings of Jesus. I'm actually preaching through a harmony of the Gospels. So if Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the same event, like the one that I'm preaching from today, then I'll just choose one of those. Today I'm choosing Luke to tell us about the ministry of John the Baptist. But uh, Matthew and Mark have a sentence that Luke does not have that I think is an important sentence. I'll read it to you in just a minute. You know, uh, most of you know that for many years I taught uh, English composition and I also taught public speaking. And one of the fundamental principles of good composition is concision. That is, uh, be concise. Don't use more words than you need to use. Don't use bigger words than you need to use. Uh, it, it is a, it's a wonderful thing to read a, uh, a well-written piece of composition that is concise. So concision is the first element of style in writing. I also think that concision is the first element of style in speaking. Uh, we all have sat through sermons or lectures that uh, were unnecessarily long. The person keeps repeating himself. She goes over it again and again in the case of a teacher or a lecture. And, and we just think, we, we got it already. We don't need you to keep going on and on over that. And uh, so... I'm, a, I'm impressed with the, the art of concision that is demonstrated in the Bible. I'm going to give you an example of that uh, right now. I hope I give you an example of a concise sermon. It uh, doesn't mean that it's short, but it does mean that I, I don't keep repeating the things that don't need to be repeated. But to me, one of the wonders of concision in the Bible is the description that we have of John the Baptist. So one of the things that it says in Matthew and Mark about John the Baptist is this. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. That's in Matthew and Mark. And then there's this in Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Uh, no, that verse 40. I'm sorry. So, <clears throat> it's chapter 1, Luke chapter 1 and verse 80. This is about John the Baptist. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Now I propose that from those two very brief descriptions, we get a very good idea into the character and ministry of John the Baptist. He wore a, cam he wore a garment of camel's hair, so it was not fancy clothes. Later on, when Jesus is talking to the crowd about John the Baptist, he asks them, what did you go out into the desert to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
I'm sure that there was a chuckle that went through the crowd because they knew he was talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist certainly was not someone who wore soft clothing. And Jesus goes on, but, oh, he says, no, those who wear soft clothing are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Again, there was probably a chuckle that went through the crowd because John the Baptist was certainly not a reed that was swayed by the winds of political ideas and political fads. He was a strong and sturdy oak, and Jesus identifies him as as much in that passage, which we probably won't get to for several months. But uh, John the Baptist, he wore a goat of he wore a coat of camel's hair, had a leather belt around his waist. He was dressed very very plainly, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And then Luke says he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. John the Baptist is one of my favorite characters in the Bible, and I think that that is a marvel of concise composition that based on two very brief sentences, we have such an accurate, imaginative delineation of this very important man. Jesus says, among all the prophets, none is greater than John the Baptist. John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, and it's my prayer that uh, this sermon today, John, though he has been in heaven for many, many years, will once again prepare for the reception of the Lord Jesus into our hearts. So turn your attention with me now to Luke chapter 3, and rather than read the entire text at the beginning, I'm just going to make my way through it as I talk to you about these things. First of all, we will see in this chapter the setting for the ministry of John the Baptist. What's the, what's the world situation? And then we find a, a powerful statement that says, the word of the Lord came to John the Baptist. I actually think that it would be better to be translated that it came upon John the Baptist. For you Greek students, the preposition is, is epi. The word of the Lord came upon. I think that's significant, and I'll make a point out of it. And then we'll spend the rest of this time and the rest of this chapter seeing John the man and his ministry, what he said to those people in that day and what he says to us in our day. So in the first couple of verses, we see the world setting, and I'll tell you ahead of time that it's not a very pretty picture. Most of the names that we read here are unfamiliar to us, but what we do know about these people is all bad. Chapter 3, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, now we, we know when Tiberius Caesar came to reign, so this is probably about the year 26. Um, remember when they reset the calendar, they, they left out some events. The Bible is not wrong, but the calendar is wrong. Jesus was actually born about 4 to 6 B.C. And uh, so... John the Baptist's ministry precedes the ministry of Jesus by just a few months. And they were both about 30 years old when, uh, when this happened. So this is, about, this is about the year 26 A.D. Tiberius Caesar was a bad man. This is not a sermon about Tiberius Caesar, so that's all I'll say. Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea. Pontius Pilate was not a good man. Pontius Pilate was a was a coward who had a yellow string where his backbone ought to have been. 
He was in, he was in a position of power because he was... Uh, I'm trying to think of a nice word. He was a man who curried the favor of the Roman government to a despicable degree. And uh, he was a bad man. Herod was Tetrarch of Galilee. This is not the Herod who attempted to kill Jesus. This is one of his descendants, also a bad man. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis. You can look on a Bible map sometime and see where all these places are. And Lysanias was Tetrarch of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now, uh, neither, neither Annas nor Caiaphas were good men. They both, they both were bad men. And uh, they were in power primarily because they too, like Pilate, had uh, sidled up alongside the Roman authorities and the Roman powers But all of this list casts a very dark picture on what the political scene was like in the story that we're about to read. And what happens in those days is the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. So this is a very dark setting, but now we turn our attention to the word of God. The word of God came... Uh, in a rather unusual place. The word of God did not come to Caesar. The word of God did not come to Pontius Pilate or to any of the people who were in positions of power, not even Annas and Caiaphas, who were high priests during these days. But it came in the wilderness to this rough and ready man, John. And the word of the Lord came... Upon him. I told you I would make something out of that, that I don't think it just means that the word of the Lord came to him. This word, if you know only two or three Greek words, you probably know the Greek word logos, uh, which is what's in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, that word there is logos. The word of the Lord here is not the word logos, it's a different word that means that it's a specific message. It is a specific message that has come to John the Baptist. And it doesn't just come to him, it comes upon him, pressing down upon him like a a burden upon him. And I think that's significant because I think that every God-called man who uh, presumes to preach the word of God needs to have a call like this, that there is not just an idea of Hey, I think it would be cool to be a preacher. I think that that would be a nice job to have. But that there needs to be a compulsion that is upon you. That this is something that I must do. That you say with the Apostle Paul, Woe unto me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, I don't think that everyone who is called to preach is called to engage in vocational ministry. But I do think that there needs to be a fire shut up in your bones if you're called to preach the gospel. When I say that there is a fire shut up in your bones, I'm, uh, I'm making a quotation from the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, you can read how that Jeremiah grew discouraged in the ministry that the Lord had given him. And so he decided that he was not going to speak anymore. I'm tired of dealing with these people who never listen to me, and I'm just done. I'm not going to prophesy anymore. 
And then Jeremiah says, but his word was like a fire shut up in my bones. And I could not hold back. And so he preached. And so I'm, I'm thankful that the Lord has sent us a, a, a group of promising young men who are preparing for the ministry. And you hear them preach, and they are just so gifted. I'm so thankful, and we are so blessed to have such a, a cadre of, of, of talented young men. And so I say to you, young men, and others of you who are considering a call to the ministry, the word of God must be upon you. And I think it needs to be obvious when you're preaching that the word of God is upon you, that this is not just some academic exercise that you're engaged in. There were plenty of people in the land of Israel who knew the academics, who probably could quote large portions of the Old Testament, but the word of the Lord came on this rough, rugged, and ready man who had apparently spent at least the last 10 years living in the wilderness. And so we have seen the setting, a very dark setting. We've seen briefly the word of the Lord upon John the Baptist. And now let's direct our attention to the man and to his ministry. Now the man himself is a sermon. And you have encountered people like that, I think. That uh, just being in the same car with them uh, raises, raises the level of conversation. Just being in the same room with them means that certain jokes are not going to be told, that uh, certain things are not going to be talked about. Uh, You are the salt of the earth, Jesus said. And you know, it doesn't take much salt on your eggs for you to know that it's there. And uh, because salt is something that makes makes its presence known. You are the salt of the earth, and salt was used not just for flavoring, salt was also used as a preservative. And the presence of the people of God in society functions as a preservative. There are certain things that uh, would quickly overtake a society. The judgment of God would quickly overtake a sinful society if it were not for the salty presence of the people of God who are there acting as a preservative factor. You remember that when God was getting ready to destroy the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, He made sure that Lot and his family got out before he destroyed that city. And God doesn't always do that. Sometimes God sends his earthly judgment upon a city and there are Christian people as well as non-Christian people in that city that are destroyed. But uh, it is a principle of God's word illustrated by the story of Lot coming out of Sodom that God's people are a preserving factor in the culture holding off the wrath of God. In the book of Second Peter, it says, God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. One of the reasons that God has not yet sent his wrath upon this sinful world is because he still has his elect in the world that he's calling out. What if God had, uh, had destroyed the world in 1973? Well, then little Jim Oreck would have had to go to hell because I wasn't saved until 1975. The Lord is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so uh, the, the presence of God's people in the world acts as a deterrent and a shield against the, the pending wrath of God that will eventually be poured out upon this world. But then the presence of the people of God acts as salt in another way, just because, as some of you have experienced, 
Uh, people don't tell dirty jokes when they're around you. When they're around you, they stop using that bad language. And uh, it's because they know that you're a Christian, that you're not a hypocrite, and they have respect for that. And uh, that's not always the case, but sometimes it is. In that way, you, just you by your very presence are functioning in a way that raises, raises the spiritual temperature wherever you are, and that's the way that it ought to be. And that's the effect that I think John the Baptist has, that this, this austere, this, this rough man, this, this man who lived in the wilderness, that there was something about him that people sensed before he even opened his mouth, this is a man of God. It is said concerning the godly minister Robert Murray McShane that when he would come out of the vestry and come upon the, uh, the, the platform where he was to preach that sometimes people would be moved to tears just because they knew that he was such a holy man. I think John the Baptist was a man like that. I conceive that he was a very different man than Robert Murray McShane. I love John the Baptist. I, I, uh, I love it that he lived in the wilderness. I say he lived there for at least 10 years, maybe longer. But at age 20, someone who was from the priestly tribe like John was, was expected to enter the ministry of the priesthood. But apparently, instead of entering the ministry of the priesthood, John went out and he lived in the wilderness. Now, I am now in my reading, reading through an atlas of the Bible, and it has a lot of pictures of the Judean wilderness. And it is one of the most forsaken places that you have ever seen in your life. Uh, But there had to be at least a little bit of vegetation around the place where John was staying because he ate locusts, which can't live on bare rock, and he ate wild honey, and bees can't make honey out of bare rock. And so out in this desolate, dry, wilderness region, John lived. I I don't know if he lived with a community or if he was just out there living in a cave by himself. But whatever the case, he was a man who was not accustomed and was not expecting the soft and comfortable treatments of uh, of a dwelling in town. He, he had set his sights on something else. He had set his sights on being a man of God and hearing the word of God. And he didn't want to be distracted with all of these other things. He didn't even want to be distracted with the distraction of keeping a few, a few sheep or keeping a few goats so that he could have milk and so that he could have meat. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, you may have heard that there is a tree in that part of the region that yields an edible pod and that these are sometimes called locusts and that that was what he ate. Don't believe a word of it. He ate grasshoppers. It wasn't cicada. He was eating grasshoppers. And um, that's the sort of thing that makes an impression on people. You've just got four or five statements made about John the Baptist and one of them is he ate grasshoppers. And uh, then also he ate wild honey. And uh, this makes me think uh, this is a man who knows how to experience pain. Because if you get after a wild hive of bees, you're going to get stung. And uh, just before church, Eric, who's a beekeeper, came up and showed me his arm where he got into his bees yesterday. And they stung him enough that his arm is, uh, 
is swelled up. I can tell you a lot of stories about, about bees. Uh, but one thing, if you're, going to, if you're going to eat wild honey, you're going to get stung a little bit. I think this speaks to the character of John the Baptist. He wasn't someone who is trying to uh, win any popularity contests, and that will become increasingly clear as we make our way through this passage of Scripture. He lived in the wilderness. He was not someone who was trying to work the political game and work his way up to an influential position in, in the convention. He was, he was a rough and rugged man, and the Word of God came to him. He was a man who knew how to be in solitude. And I don't think that any man of God ought to become a hermit, but I believe that every man of God has got to know how to be alone. I remember years and years ago hearing Paul Washer preach, and uh, he said that when he was called to preach, he told his pastor about it, and his pastor said to him, Young man, can you be by yourself? Because that is going to be required if you're going to be a man of God. You can't always be working the social crowd and going to every social event. You have got to, at least sometimes, be by yourself and interact with God. He was a man who was ready. He was a man who was rough. The Word of God came to him. And verse 3 says, he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So now we're into the third and final uh, part of this this message, which will take us all the way through verse uh, verse 17. And uh, the ministry of John the Baptist, he's proclaiming a baptism, but it was a baptism that meant something, as all baptisms ought to mean something. And it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a great deal of confusion about what repentance is. And uh, Max uh, gave us a little bit of an introduction to what repentance is. Repentance is not merely feeling bad about your sins, but that is part of it. The catechism asks the question, what is repentance unto life? And the answer is, repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin... So that's the first thing. You know that you're a sinner. A true sense of his sin does with grief and hatred of his sin. So it does make you sad. It's not simply saying, well, yeah, I'm a sinner and everybody's a sinner. There, it makes you sad. So you grieve over your sin and you hate your sin. You're not trying to excuse your sin. Say everybody's like that. You hate your sin And you turn from it unto God. So you don't just repent and stay there. It's impossible. You repent and at the same time you turn to God. And when you turn to God, you turn to Him with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. That means that you fully intend to live like God wants you to live and you really try. And if that's not true of whatever happened to you that you're calling repentance, it wasn't true saving repentance. The repentance that John was preaching is a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And that's what this baptism of his represented. Verses 4, 5, and 6 tell us that John is the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. 
We read this Old Testament prophecy a few minutes ago, but here it is again. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So John's ministry was one of preparation. And now that preparation is described in poetic terms. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So this is the kind of preparation that might be made when a a king was going to visit a region. We want to make sure that our roads are in good shape. And so let's smooth out this place that's a little too high. This place that's a little too rough. And this curve in this road, we, we don't want the king to, to be un, unnecessarily jostled around as he comes through in his carriage. Let's straighten this place out. Let's, let's get people ready to receive the king. We want the king to come, and we want him to come in a way that has been prepared for him. And that's the ministry of John the Baptist. And uh, we have read elsewhere about uh, the prophecies made about John the Baptist, how that he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous. And so God used John the Baptist to smooth the way so that the ministry of Jesus would be powerful and effective. And uh, that this would prepare the way for not just the Jews to receive the salvation of God, but for all flesh to see the salvation of God, Gentiles as well as Jews. And so now we come to the message that was part of John's ministry. And uh, in verses 7 and following, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, I don't think that a, a, a gathering of snakes, I don't think it's called a brood. Uh, the word brood here is like the word brood hen. Uh, this is a hen that's raising little ones. She's, she's, got, uh, she's got offspring. And that's the way that the word is here. You offspring of vipers. Uh, I guess throughout history, uh, people have considered it an insult to say that you are the son of something bad. And uh, we have, you know, we have phrase in our own language uh, that. Uh, but in these days, it was, uh, you son of a viper. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we need to think that John the Baptist is using profane language. But you may be sure that he is not using language that's going to get him a promotion down at the seminary. And uh, so he calls these, Matthew and Mark say that these are the religious leaders when the Pharisees come out to him. Here it just says, he says it to the whole crowd, you brood of vipers, you offspring of snakes. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Uh, I think this is a rhetorical question. He's not asking them, hey, has somebody preached to you before? Instead, he's saying, you come down here prissing around like you're all that, and you've come to hear the preacher preaching down by the Jordan River. Well, this ain't no circus show, boys. There's purpose to this. I'm here proclaiming the Word of God. Don't come down here with all of your pomp and circumstance and acting like you're supposed to get some sort of special treatment. 
I know what you're like. God has told me what you're like. You are the offspring of snakes. And nobody has told you the real reason that you're supposed to be down here. So listen up. You need to repent. And I can see you start saying to yourselves, well, now, do you realize that you're talking to the descendants of Abraham? So look at what John says to them next. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Don't go bragging that you've got some kind of pedigreed ancestry and therefore you've got a special pact with God that he's going to treat you okay and you don't need to repent. God's got no trouble raising up children of Abraham. He can raise children of Abraham up out of these stones. Nobody should ever say, well, you know, I think I'm going to be okay because my mom and dad were such good Christians. My grandma and grandpa were such good Christians. Surely I'm going to be okay. No, godliness is not something that is inherited from your parents. And so John says, don't begin to give that excuse. You've got to bring forth good fruits, fruits that indicate that you really are changed. He says in verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a dire situation, he says. When someone has gone to the trouble to take his axe out to the orchard and he's already put one hack on the roots, it's not long until the whole tree is going to be cut down. And so this is a figure of speech is saying, you guys are in big trouble and you need to straighten up right now and bear fruit or you're going to get cut down. And it wasn't but about 40 years later until they were cut down. They didn't bring forth fruit. And so now we have uh, some instances of three specific groups who come to him and say, how does this message apply to us? Verse 10 says, and the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. I don't think that, I don't think that The Lord is teaching us in this passage of Scripture that if you're going to truly repent, you need to give away half of everything that you have. But I think the message is clear. You are to be generous. And when you see people in need, don't harden your heart. If you've got two and you don't need two, then give to the one who has none. And then some tax collectors came. Now, tax collectors in that day... Uh, were paid by the Roman government. They were usually Jewish people, and so they were, uh, they were detested because the Jews did not like the Romans. And here is someone who is a Jew who is collecting taxes for the Roman government. And these tax collectors were even more detested because they would often collect more than was required. And uh, then they would threaten the people, if you, don't, if you don't give me what I'm asking, then there will be soldiers who will come And do bad things to you. And so the people hated the tax collectors. And so these tax collectors come and they say, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. You guys are are being crooks. Be content with with what you have. Don't be be, uh, stealing from other people by saying that you have government authorization to take from them more than they're required to pay in their taxes. And then there's a third group that comes. 
In verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. So he said, you you guys have got spears, and you've got swords, and you've got the authority of the Roman government behind you, and you can be bullies, and you have been bullies, and you're throwing your weight around, and and, uh, you need to quit doing that. He doesn't say you should withdraw from the army. And this is one of the passages of Scripture that those of us who believe that serving in the armed forces is a legitimate employment for Christians that we would point to. John doesn't say, hey, if you're going to repent, you need to get out of the army. But he says, you've got to serve in, in the army honorably. And don't, don't use your, your power, don't use your authority to, to bully people around. <coughs> In just a few minutes, I'll say how each of these things applies to us. Verse 15 says, As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So we might say, I'm not worthy to, to shine his shoes. But John says, I'm not worthy to untie the strap of the sandal of the one who's coming after me. Here's how he is so much greater than I. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor. So a winnowing fork was uh, an instrument uh, that farmers would use when their grain had been threshed. So uh, if you've ever seen wheat on the stalk, in order to get the grains of wheat, you have to kind of beat it a little bit. Of course, it's almost all done with a combine today. But, uh, you know, when, when you cut the wheat down or whatever the grain is, barley, it's, it's connected to the chaff. And so uh, you, you put it on a threshing floor and you hit it with a flail. And a lot of the chaff will be uh, separated from from the grain, and then you take a winnowing fork and you throw it up in the air, and the breeze will carry away the chaff, and then the grain will fall back down. And John says, the one who's coming after me has got a winnowing fork, and he's going to do that to people. I'm not saying he's going to be a farmer. I'm saying that he's going to do that to people, that he is going to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John the Baptist says, I'm not the Christ. The Christ is coming after me, and he is so much greater than I. I'm not even worthy to touch his sandal. And he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And so you had better repent and be ready, because he's going to gather the wheat into his barn, but he's going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, the message of John the Baptist to that people and the message of John the Baptist to us is very similar. I say to you today, you must repent. Stop playing games with your life. Stop playing games with God. I'm not going to call you a bunch of snakes because I think that most people in here are sheep. But if there's someone who needs to hear it, if there's someone in here who says, I am that person, I am playing games, I am pretending, I'm something in public, but in private, I'm something else. 
I'm something at church, but when I go to school, I'm something else. And you may know today that you're a hypocrite. You must repent. Repent and bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And then the message that John the Baptist gives to these three groups is relevant to us. Be generous. Don't, don't turn a hard heart to people who, who are in physical need. If you, have, if you have more than you need and more than you can use, share with those who are in need. Let him who has two tunics share with him who has none. Don't cheat. He says to the tax collectors, don't, don't collect more than you are required to just in order to make your lives better. And then don't, don't be a bully. The, the positive side of that is be kind, be nice to people. But I think one of the most important aspects of the message of John the Baptist is that um, we, like John the Baptist, ought always to be pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not the star of this show. John the Baptist could say, I, I, must, become, I must become less. He must become greater. All of this is not about us. All of this is about Jesus Christ. And we, like John, ought to be pointing people to John, ought ought to be pointing people to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who came with his winnowing fork in his hand. And he separates all the world into wheat and into chaff. And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you submit to his lordship and you receive him, you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus Christ, then one day you will be gathered into his barn because you are a precious grain of wheat in his sight. But if you don't take these things seriously, if you do not become a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then one day you will be separated from the wheat. And you will be burned up with unquenchable fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is not just someone who stands aloof and says, All of you sinners need to repent. Instead, Jesus came and and got down in the dirt with us. He was not a sinner, but he lived among sinners. And when he died, he died a an excruciatingly painful death as a substitute for sinners. That means that it is we who deserve to die that excruciatingly painful death and endure the wrath of God in hell. But now God in His mercy and in His justice has sent someone who will stand as a substitute for everyone who receives Him. Jesus died on that cross because the wages of sin is death. But Jesus did not stay dead. God raised him up from the dead, and he is alive today, and he ever lives to receive sinners. And the Lord Jesus Christ, hear him speak to you through me. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. May today be the day of salvation for you. May today be the day when you are Uh, gathered into the garner of the Lord Jesus Christ as one of his precious wheat. Jim Bob, come and lead us in a concluding hymn.